Welcome to our occasional show. It's called Notes from the Underground. This is a one-hour-long show where we invite guests, while not necessarily musicians themselves, to discuss the importance of music in their lives. Joining us today is Adrian Chamberlain, entertainment writer for the Times Colonist newspaper right here in Victoria. Hi, Adrian, and welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. Could you please start off by telling us a bit about yourself, how you got the job, the path you took, what opportunities came your way, how you landed this role? Give us the play-by-play. Sure. I, um, I took an English degree, actually from UVic, and of course, with an English degree, you can't really do anything practical. So I, I, was, I was interested in being kind of like a rock writer and like the guys in Rolling Stone magazine. Anyway, so I, I took jur- a journalism degree at the University of Western Ontario. Then after that, I um, worked for a couple of years at a small newspaper in Castlegar, BC. In newspapers, I'm sure it's the same now, you, you would start of, often you would start in a smaller paper. That was a weekly. And then from there, I went to the um, Winnipeg Free Press, where I did some music writing, theater, entertainment writing. And then we wanted to get back to Victoria, so I, uh, I would check in with Victoria. Eventually, a woman who had been an entertainment writer for, must have been like 40 years, Audrey Johnson, was finally retiring. I think she was in her 70s. Wow, that's and amazing. I know. She was, uh, and uh, so to my surprise, I got hired. Although at first, she didn't immediately leave. And so I had to do uh, labor reporting for nine months, which was a bit of a stretch because I had never done that before. So I learned a lot about labor reporting. So you're going by the seat of your pants on that one. Yeah, there was a lot of jargon. Um, I remember at the time, I didn't know, um, for example, at union, you know, terminology, accreditation. It can be a bit technical, and so that was, I had to learn quickly. But I, yeah, you do what you have to do. That's right. And I was going to ask you, with this woman being there so long, were those uh, big boots to fill when you got that job? Yeah, in a way. She didn't do a lot of um, what Audrey did. She was more of a fine arts um, writer, I would say. So, I I mean, this may sound amazing, but really at the time, the paper wasn't really covering popular music too much. They had a columnist who would write once a week. Ken Eisner, I think was his name. And and so, anyway, what she did was, you know, she did a lot of classical music and and theater. And and so when I, I first came to the paper, the kind of music I knew the most about was popular music. And so they said, yeah, so you'll be covering uh, classical music and reviewing it every week. I thought, oh, no, because I don't, I don't know too much about that. But I remember at the time going to uh, getting record, like actually getting vinyl records. These concerts, were, classical concerts were on a Sunday afternoon. I, in the Sunday morning, I would listen to the records and do tons of studying, cramming. I go to the concert and write it up and write up a review. I go to uh, the Royal Theater, and it was always the Victoria Symphony, mostly. Anyway, so that was a another learning curve. In a way, that's good training for when you go to a concert that you really aren't familiar with the music. Uh, you you must have to uh, prepare yourself, right? It is good training. It, it's not un- uncommon in newspapers. They like you to have some background. I mean, I'm sure it's different, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, but it's sort of smaller, medium-sized papers. You would, um, 
you know, you would you would quickly get up to speed. And, and of course, if you're immersed in that world, then you, you do start to, it's like a crash course that lasts for years and years. Great. Uh, yeah. For you, what is the role of an entertainment writer? Is that what you call yourself too, as an entertainment writer? Yeah, because at the Times Colonist newspaper, what I did, um, especially when I started, uh, when I started, there was a movie reviewer, Michael Reed, and I did all the entertainment stuff. So I would do, you know, theater, uh, dance, opera, classical music, popular music. So it was a real smorgasbord. The role was basically the core of the job is is doing um, interviews, what we call previews. So, you know, Bruce Coburn is coming to play the Royal, for example. You would interview him, and then uh, when he actually came, and then reviews. So when he actually came, then you'd, you'd write the review. It's a, it's a, a yeah, it's a two-part uh, deal. It's a great job, especially after having done the labor reporting, I thought, boy... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is good. Yeah. It's kind of like night and day, I'd say, those two. It was like night and day. I mean, you always get two free tickets. I'd be the envy of my friends. That I can imagine. You'd be going to all these concerts for free. Yeah, I mean, and you, and you do it for years, and, and you're, it's a tremendous uh, education. I was always aware it was a very privileged position. When I was young, for example, I worked for a year in a lumber mill in Chimanus, which was very hard work. You know, compared to the lumber mill, <laughs> this was so much better. This is uh, probably, I'm guessing, a lot more creative, too. M- much more creative, and uh, especially, um, uh, I, I always especially enjoyed the reviewing, writing uh, critiques, because you, you can be quite creative, and, and, and you put your opinion in. So with, with the interviews, not so much. It's, it's not so much opinion. It's reflecting, of course, what you're your discussion with the person. But with the reviews, yeah, you can be quite, um, you can be quite creative. When you talk about doing an interview, say, with Bruce Coburn, how much research do you do ahead of time when you uh, interview a performer? I would always do as much as I could. So it would be really reading lots of other interviews, listening to music, just kind of immersing yourself. The, the, the challenge on on newspapers is is you're doing things quickly. I mean, you might be going to maybe a couple of concerts in a week and say maybe a play or something. So you, you know you're reading the play, you're listening to the music. So yeah, it, it's it's a pretty fast uptick. I, I remember uh, especially challenging it would be the annual Victoria International Jazz Festival, and and you know they you get big names and international names, and man, I you'd be You'd be doing like a ton of prep, but it's, it's, it's quite exhilarating and, and fun as well. When you're really busy like that and you're doing a lot of shows like in the Jazz Fest, how do you gear yourself up for a review or performance when you've had a bad day or you just beat dead dog tired, maybe distracted? And you, how do you actually give an, a good review where you can give a fair review when you're not feeling up to going to the concert. Yeah, you know I know what you mean. mean. Yeah. Well, I do know what you mean. And and so for uh, how it worked at the Times Colonist was uh, you worked on what was called flexible hours. So in other words, um, if you had to review that night, you know, you could leave at, say, 2 o'clock or something, go home. I would always take a nap. I'm a big napper. 
in my mind, I'd always want to be in good, you know, like not tired, ready to go. And, and you know, because to be fair to the performer too, right? Like you want, you want to, uh, you know, they're, they're preparing themselves and, 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 and you, you want to give it a good shot. You know, when I started at the paper and for many years, it used to be the deadline was quite early. It, it would be perhaps 1030 or something. So they would allow you to go to Bruce Coburn and, and then the next morning you would write it. And of course, you know, with the advent of the internet and, and all that, everything has to be more immediate. So the challenge became filing it, what, you know, what they call filing it that night, getting it out that night. And so you would literally be there with your laptop in the theater taking notes and writing during the concert. The typical thing is when the concert's ending, you're pretty well... I think the deadline would be, uh, you know, say, for example, 9.30. So the concert might even might be still going on. So it's, that's, it's a very challenging kind of writing. And these days, Mike Devlin at the Times Colonist uh, does all that stuff. He's a rock music writer, and, and you know, he's a master at it. He's, he's so quick. You know, very talented guy. So it's, yeah, challenging stuff. It just brings to mind an image of in the old movies when one of the reporters would get a story and they'd all race to the telephone booth to file their story. It's kind of like that, yeah. And, um, you know, it doesn't always go right. Uh, both Mike and I would have funny stories. I Sometimes people would be complaining, um, you know, because of the, the glare. We'd always go to the back, for example, of the Royal and, and ask to sit in the wheelchair section if we could because there, there's nobody behind you and, and uh, it's going to, but it's still, you know, people get disturbed and they tell you to cut it out. And I remember once inter, uh, reviewing Elton John at the arena. I can't remember why I was doing this. Um, oh, I know I had to get out of my seat because people didn't like my laptop. So I kind of went in the, like where people walk, you know, up in the stands. I was out there and then these kind of women who were drinking a lot of beer, shall we say, were they weren't like heckling me, but they were saying, "Hey, what are you doing? Hey, come on!" And like I'm trying to write this thing, I'm like, "Oh no, this is this is not going well." Uh, so those are the kind of things. Uh, I remember Mike Devlin once saying, I, "I it was also at the arena. He was sort of leaving. He was trying to write something, and he was sort of in the lobby area." He was writing on top of, he had his laptop on top of a garbage can and people were heckling him. Oh boy. And then he, he had this friend who was a really big guy who was, who was sort of like shielding him from, I don't know if people were like throwing stuff at him, but it was, it was sort of a, uh, yeah, that was an extreme example gotta, of it. He has to bring his own chicken wire. <laughs> He's got to bring his own, yeah, it was, uh, that was, I think that was the only time that, yeah, usually it goes, uh. Uh, I remember uh, not to go on and on, but no, go both, ahead. Yeah, both, both Mike and I covered um, the Bare Naked Ladies, Neil Young and Randy Bachman in Duncan. I think it was called the Clean Air Concert. It was a benefit for you know environmental. This must have been before laptops because I knew a musician up there. I thought, oh, how am I going to get the story back to the paper? So I knew this musician and in Duncan, and I said, "Hey, can I uh, can I come to your place and use your your desk computer and file this story?" He said, "Oh yeah, no problem." 
he said, I won't be there, but, uh, you know, the door will be open and I have a dog, but don't worry about him. So when I got there, this dog was, uh, it was, it was almost like an attack dog. Like it was very upset and it was like a good sized dog. So I thought, oh no, but, uh, I thought, well, I've got to, so anyway, I went inside and it worked out okay. But yeah, these are the kind of occasional gong shows. That come. I think that's funny. And people would never know that either. They just think that you might just go sit there quietly with a notepad and that's it. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes it, it does work out great. Finally, when we got laptops and all that, it was good because, um, for example, if an artist played a song and, and you, you're thinking, oh, what's the title of that? Well, you, you could just you know, input some of the lyrics and, and get that information or um, all that was available. So the definite advantages as well. Do you let the entertainers know in advance that you'll be in the audience? Not really. I, 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 so typically you would be working with the promoter. The tradition in entertainment is, is they, they'll give you a couple of free tickets. So I guess the promoter might mention, I, to be honest, you know, uh, Chris, I, I think a lot of these guys don't care. You know, if you're Steve Earle and you're touring North America, you, you, you probably don't even care. And, and I'm not even sure if these guys always read you know, you can imagine, right? Um, yeah. So many cities. But having said that, one of the reasons I thought of interviewing you was because of your story in the Times Colonist called The Day I Got a Postcard from Tony Bennett. Now, there's one performer that, after reading this, he was definitely interested in what you had to say. Could you tell us a bit about that, please? This was, I think it might have been about seven years ago of course i wrote the column and i can't remember now but it was it was late late tony bennett i always liked the late tony bennett because as he got older his, his voice took on this kind of grainy quality that sort of appealed to me and um anyway i was kind of an admirer of him so he came and i i reviewed the show and and he was an older man of course and uh you know i found it quite moving and um I, I did have a couple of criticism, like very small things. And so I, I think about a week later, and I hadn't interviewed him. He'd be too busy. And uh, so there's no interview. There's no contact. So a, a week later at the newspaper, I got a, a little envelope and it was a note from him on his stationery. It was like a little postcard, really nice quality paper. And it had his park avenue, you know, like I think it was a Central Park address all embossed and it was just like a nice note and he says something like um it was so nice i almost thought he was teasing me uh because he, he was saying oh you know i although i'm uh you know be doing this long time i you know i can i can still learn and uh thanks for and i thought boy who am i to teach tony Bennett? i mean i you know i wouldn't even so it was a very gracious note and and um that's rare so I kept that note actually from Tony and I framed it. I've only kept about two or three things in 30 years of, uh, and, and one of them was that. The only interview I kept, because I would tape all my interviews, was I once interviewed Ray Charles, who's, who's sort of my hero. And uh, so I kept that. I have it on cassette, so I don't, yeah, I, I almost don't have a way to play it. I once interviewed the uh, writer. David Sedaris, who, 
and and he sent me a postcard. It was a funny little postcard, just saying thank you. And uh, so I, I kept that. It's on my fridge. And at one point, my wife decided to clean up the front of the fridge and get rid of some stuff. And she threw out my David Sedaris. She said, oh, I threw it out. Oh, no, that's like your mom throwing out your old Marvel comics from the 60s. That's like, it's exactly like that. <laughs> so I said to my wife, hey, uh, she said it's in the garbage can. I said, well, you're going to have to get that. Well, you know, she quite graciously retrieved it for me. But, oh, you got yeah, it back. That's good. I got it. Was in the, uh, it was in the garbage can in the backyard. And I, actually, you mentioned that it was a funny postcard. I can't imagine David Sedaris being anything but funny. He's a very nice guy, and, and um, uh, mind you, later I found out he, this is very common. I thought I was being kind of singled out because of the, uh, you know, uh, for doing such a wonderful interview. <laughs> and yeah. uh, he, he, he sends tons of them out, but, it, you know, very nice, uh, a nice guy as well. Still nice. And I, oh. I, I just want to go back to the Tony Bennett one because, right. you know, when I read your um, article, your column, you saved it for the end, and I really liked what you said, because uh, you, you mentioned earlier that you criticized his voice a little bit in a certain way. You didn't criticize it, but you pointed out that it wasn't, it was more coarse. But yeah. in, in your article, you said it was a tremendously affecting moment, flawed and deeply human, in the way that only great art can be. And that, to me, was really a nice way to say that. I think the really good stuff... You know, for example, a concert is a combination of things. So you could have, for example, some classical pianist who's technically just incredible. But, it's, you know, if you get these other elements too, you know, the sort of humanity um, of the person or some sense of individuality. And, and sometimes it can be even something that's a little bit flawed, at least in popular music. I, I think it can make it better. I'm sure you know what I mean. I do. Yeah. When you mention that, there's the flip side of that, too. Like, have you ever interviewed somebody and they're very difficult, just the yes, no, one-word answers? Do you have any tricks to draw out their personality a bit? It would happen sometimes. It's funny you mention that. There's a a really well-known marketing guy, producer guy, and English guy in Canada. I think he's based in Toronto called Richard Flohill. Richard's probably about 80. Anyway, Richard is doing some kind of memoir, and, and... he says, he said on Facebook, does anybody have stories about Jeff Healy? He was about the most difficult interview I ever. It was a phone interview, and I, you know, I did had all my prep and I had my twenty questions. I, I was ad, admired as, uh, and I just got one word answers, and uh, he seemed very, almost sullen. I no other word for it. And, and after about five minutes, I said, Jeff, we don't have to do this interview. I mean, just, let's. Let's not do it. If, if, you know, it, and it was the only time that's ever happened. Did he? Did he actually bounce back and get into it, or did you? He he did... bounced back somewhat. I, my impression was, Jeff was a very knowledgeable. I mean, he he did the rock stuff, but as as you, I'm sure you know, he also knew a ton about jazz, and he was very knowledgeable. And I think he was perhaps, you know, fed up with doing interviews, for whatever reason. You know, I don't know if you know this, uh, he had a campus community radio show in Toronto once. Oh. I listened to it when I lived in Toronto, this is decades ago, but uh, Jeff Healy was the host, so it's kind of funny that he's he's hard to interview when he's he's so radio savvy. 
Well, yeah, and so in the net the note I sent to Richard, I mean, I said, but you know, maybe he was just having a bad day, and uh, I mean, who knows? I remember um, interviewing on the phone uh, Deborah Harry from Blondie, and it, it was kind of similar. Uh, she didn't really want to do the interview, and then it got worse because, <laughs> somewhat naively, I guess, uh, I had read, you know, she had had like quite a bad heroin problem, and. So in, in journalism, typically you save the hard questions for the end in case the person hangs up. So I said, I'm paraphrasing here, but I said, hey, uh, uh, so Deborah, how about that? A heroin problem. Uh, I guess you, you've got that licked, or I, I would have put it better. So that really didn't go down well. Like she didn't want to talk about that. And uh, it was a pretty short interview. Adrian, my next question to you. Have you ever regretted giving, say, a bad review, and maybe later, after you've it's gone to print, you've realized perhaps you've misjudged it? Has that ever happened to you? It has happened. I, I think it happened more when I was young, and in hindsight, it was a mistake. So you'd be in your twenties, and and maybe you want to be a bit funny. Um, it's you know, um, and been, of course you're you been don't yeah, have you done that? You, you've done uh, so, Chris. You you have done some reviewing and and that kind of thing yourself. No, actually, um, you are the man. <laughs> You're my first interview person, so I don't review. I just for my radio show, I do research, but I don't usually critique on the music or anything like that. I just play it, and occasionally I have an opinion, I suppose, but I I don't get too deep into it. Oh, okay, I understand. Yeah, so I, you know, trying to be sort of clever or or flip, I, I remember once, this was a play at the Belfry Theater directed by Glynis Lation, who's a really good director and an extremely nice person. It was something to do with, uh, I can't remember the title of the play, but there's a lot, a lot of like kind of TV screen stuff going on on stage. And I said, oh, it just made you want to, Change chant. It was just some flip comment, and then later she said how much that had uh, upset her. And I thought about that, and I thought, boy, yeah, you know, that was uh, that's not good. That's life too. I think you know sometimes you say something you don't know how it affects other people. It's it's true. Yeah, I guess uh, it just carries more weight if you're going to write about it or something. I think if it's your, and, and I became more and more aware of this the further, further I went, you know, for the artist, um, you know, they see something in print. I mean, um, people would remember stuff, a negative comment years later. And, and of course, I, you know, I'd moved on. But for them, it is a big deal. Like, you know, they're, they're putting themselves out there. And, uh, you know, and then they get some kind of, um, you know, flip comment or, you know, to them, hurtful comment. Um, and, and I think it, over the years, I became more and more, you know, where, and at the same time, you want to have to be honest, though, too. So it's a, it's a bit of a balance. I can see that, yeah. Have, have you ever been um, unexpectedly blown away by a performance you thought would be, for lack of a better word, lame? Lame? Ah, boy. I mean... I think so. Uh, a typical thing, because I, I reviewed a lot of theater too, and uh, I would cover something called the Fringe Theater Fest. You know, it's all this sort of alternative. And um, so there were so many plays 
uh, you might be reviewing 20 plays over the course of, uh, I think it'd be a 10 day fest or, you know, even more. I, uh, you know, you'd be reviewing sometimes like three or four plays shows a day. And uh, of course you, you, you couldn't really prep too much on all of them. And, uh, you know, sometimes you just walk into something and it would just be the most amazing thing. Yeah, it's, that's a bit of a hard one. Just the small sort of venue of a play can do that. Sometimes experimental uh, type music would be, you'd read about it and think, oh, geez, you know, this <laughs> seems kind of, it's going to be weird. And uh, but when you're actually there, you, that's the magic of live performance, I guess. You know, you, you'd be impressed. Live performance makes me think now with COVID, how has this affected your way of reviewing events? And because there are no events really, they're mostly live streaming. What what do you work around, and how do you work with uh, COVID times? I probably mentioned to you before, Chris, that um, in the last couple of years, I've been for the Times columnist, just really just doing a theater column of reviews, you know, theater reviews, some dance reviews, and opera and stuff. But anyway. That's all disappeared, uh, as you know, absolutely. And so I haven't been doing a column. And, and then in the last couple of weeks, so last month or two months, I've reviewed two, two plays online. You know, it's a, a virtual performance, I guess. You know, partly that you want to support these. It's so terrible for these theater companies and, and all these people, you know, the musicians. And, but I have to admit, it's not the same as, you know, for me as, uh, and I'm sure them as, as, as live performance. No, there's that energy that you just can't get from looking at a computer screen or TV screen. For me, yeah. And, and I'm sure for everybody, it's that feeling of being in the same room, you know, and, and you know, anything could happen. They hope it's going to be good and usually is. But uh, yeah, interesting. I hope these... COVID times are perhaps the end is in sight. I, I hope so. And I was just wondering also about your own tastes in arts and music, dance. Um, you know, you've reviewed a lot of things. Have you grown to like certain things that you like have been introduced to over the years? What are your interests in the arts that way? My interest um, young and, and growing up would be really uh, popular music and rock music. And then... Um, I became more and more interested in soul music, kind of obsessed with Ray Charles to the point that uh, in my basement, I almost have a little shrine to him where one of my most prized possessions is this old uh, publicity photo of the Ray Letts. They were Ray Charles's backup singing group, and it's signed by two of the Ray Letts. Wow, that's um, neat. It is kind of neat. It's quite nerdy as well. Soul music was a, a big thing for me. I remember being very um, captivated. Actually, here's one. Here's an example of an artist I didn't know anything about, but I don't know if you know Sharon Jones and the Daft Kings. Oh, most definitely. You know them, yeah. yeah. Aren't they great? And Play a lot of them on my show, uh, for sure. Oh, that's great. Uh, yeah, and have you ever seen her? I mean, she's passed on, sadly. but That's right. No, I, I know she was playing the Alex Goulden for a while there, a few yeah. years ago. She, uh, the, so the first time I, I saw her, she did, uh, you know, that Blues Bash um, outdoor concert. And I'd never heard of her. 
I went to it and I thought, oh, I mean, it was just amazing. She was doing that kind of old school um, soul R&B review. So yeah, so soul music, but, but I found, you know, it's like anything, the more you get exposed, I became, you know, interested, more and more interested in jazz, uh, the more I was exposed to it. You know, it's funny in, in the world of popular music, and unfortunately, jazz is much less popular with the general public. The good part for me is you would have access to, in terms of interviews, all these super famous jazz artists. I remember interviewing uh, Wayne Shorter and, and Dizzy Gillespie and uh, Chick Corea, Charlie Hayden, Sun Ra, you know, people like that. Max Roach, you know, the famous, famous drummer. A very nice guy. So you're you're getting all these, you know, it'd be like in popular music. I don't know, like getting to interview you two all the time. You know what? I, I don't know who the, you know what I mean. I do, and yeah. it's actually the one thing that really jumps out at me in talking to you today is, I pictured as a writer for the Victoria newspaper and getting reviews that you'd be talking to sort of medium level people most of the time. But you, you've mentioned a lot of top-notch performers, international stars and all that. So that is very interesting. You do over the years. Now, mind you, occasionally some of these people are on their way down. <laughs> so, uh, um, or, you know, I don't mean to be facetious, but you know, their popularity perhaps has, has waned a, a bit. I, I interviewed uh, Little Richard a couple of times. He was a, a real character. One time he, he just phoned out of the blue. He, there was no time set up, but he had my number from the promoter. He was coming to Victoria. I picked up the phone and, and he said, hey, this is Little Richard. Uh, you know, let's, t-. and he was all like, he was really happy. He was really up. And I, I was completely unprepared. I was like grabbing my tape recorder and trying to think of what to ask this guy. I don't know if you're aware, Chris, but Little Richard, there's a very infamous thing in Victoria concert history, and Little Richard came to perform at the Royal Theatre, and he was hired by this promoter that I won't name, but she, uh, some of her business practices were, I think, a bit colorful. And anyway, so I had never seen Little Richard, and I thought, oh, this would be good, because you know, I'm a big fan, and so I got to the Royal. I could hear the band. He had a big orchestra, and they were warming up. And the doors were supposed to open, for example, at 8. But, you know, it was 8 past, and it was 8, and 8.15, 8.30. And they hadn't let the audience into the, um, into the auditorium. They were just in the lobby, and people were getting uh, kind of upset and, and stuff. And so it turned out little Richard had demanded his uh, fee up front, and the promoter wanted to wait until she got all the cash from the concert, then pay him. So perhaps, perhaps she didn't have the money. And but a lot of these old R&B guys, like you know, Little Richard or James Brown or whatever, they they were very hard nosed about this because they were always getting ripped off back in the day. So you had they had to get their money up front. He wouldn't perform. Really? And even though the, the whole band, you know, was there, and, uh, and I was so disappointed. And the story turned out to be interviewing people who were very disappointed. And then I, I saw his bus leave, and I saw him in the window. And I saw his face. I'm, I'm sure this was him. Uh, maybe by then I was so excited, I was almost imagining it. But I thought, oh, it's like, you know, I came so close to seeing this guy. 
My goodness. I, but, you know, I do understand old time, these old-time musicians not getting paid, and I can understand the hard-nosed bit. Especially the um, blues and, and R&B guys. I interviewed B.B. King a number of times. He used to come here all the time. How long have you lived in uh, Victoria? I've been here for 20 years now. I grew up in Prince George, and oh. just talking about these guys, I remember... He was on his way out, as you say. It was I didn't go see John Lee Hooker, Willie Dixon, The Ventures, or Roy Orbison. Can you imagine? Oh, it's, yeah, it's in funny. the 70s. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, they were all supposedly on their way out. Yeah, I had a funny. Uh, oh boy, I've forgotten the name of this blues harmonica player. Very well known. A fellow at Monday Magazine was also Robert Amos. We were both going to interview this guy. And so he had, he had such a thick accent, I, I couldn't understand him. You know, and he was uh, an African-American guy from the Deep South, and he was older. And uh, so I had my 20 questions, and, and I, I couldn't really follow up on these questions because I, 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 it was just, it just seemed so garbled and, and the kind of thick patois. And, you know, it made me feel like such a... Uh, <laughs> kind of like a white guy from Victoria, and so I thought, oh no, and uh, and so later I was going through the tape and almost like a forensic, like playing things over and over, trying to get something out. And then I talked to Robert at Monday and I said, hey, did you talk to so and so? And he said, oh yeah, I couldn't understand a thing he said. Uh, and so that was yeah, that's something too. And you don't remember who the guy was, eh? Oh man, it's on the tip of my tongue. Uh, boy. It's, it's racing through my mind, too, but I, I can't help you there. I'm so terrible with words. I can see faces. I have another question for you. Right. Okay, but say this is not COVID times and everything's happening and it's like normal. Can you go out just for fun and watch a performance without having that critical or professional eye and doing a review in your head? Can you just go out and enjoy the music or enjoy the play of the dance? Oh, I know what you mean, Chris. Yeah, there is kind of an element of that. So you get so used to analyzing things. You have to do that as a writer. And then when you're just going things to things for fun, you sort of tend to do that. And I find by doing that you you lose um you know that kind of spontaneous enjoyment so there are times when i think oh i'm, I'm kind of i think i'm kind of analyzing this uh, concert or or play and 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 you know so i yeah i i do know what you mean i was in animation years ago and i could not watch an animated film without doing all the math and how they put it together and seeing mistakes. And uh, I just wanted to watch, you know, Pinocchio or whatever. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah, I, I thought it would I, be the same with you. I, I was, I've just been reading a biography of the film director, Mike Nichols, and uh, they were sort of touching on that. He was a very analytical guy. Uh, yeah, so I, I guess in a way it kind of wrecks it, but then, um, but you know, I still love going to concerts no matter how many years you've gone to live performance, uh, there's always that thing, you know, just before the curtain goes up and, and it, it's still exciting. I think uh, there's an excitement to that. I agree. And I think you've, you've actually described that well throughout the last half hour about the, 
the feeling of a live performance, there's that different energy, which we all miss. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I feel, I really feel for these, um, all these arts groups and, and not only that, but, um, yeah, I mean, the musicians, there's promoters. I was reading a post, um, you know, the people that do the behind the scenes stuff too, right? The lighting and the sound and that's a difficult period, but, but, you know, I'm, as I said before, I'm, I'm, I, I think light might be at the end of the tunnel with these vaccines and you're just hoping. Yeah. Okay, so you're ready for my last question. Right. It's an easy one. <laughs> As an entertainment writer, is there anything that I missed talking to you today that you would like to talk about or share with the listening audience? It's funny. Um, I would always say to people, you know, the role of the critic or whatever. I mean, I would always say, you know, it's, it's, it's just one, one opinion. And hopefully it's an educated and a thoughtful one, but... I would always think of it as part of the conversation rather than I never liked this idea of, of pronouncements coming down from on high. So um, mind you, I mean, you know, if you're a journalist, you, your stuff is in print or, or online or whatever, but I, that was something I kind of emphasize. And, and actually these days, the, the role of the critic is, is much diminished. There's so many voices out there you know, with the web and, and, and all that stuff, you know, which is good in a lot of ways. But, I mean, that's another thing, too. I know we don't have time to... Uh, but a lot of newspapers are, are letting their film critics go and their, you know, classical music critics. That's a lot. A lot of that's fading away. That's really sad to hear because I know we can get information from anywhere, but there's something really nice about going to... Like your column, it's a regular column, or Mike Devlin or whoever, or Jack Knox... You go there, and um, it's like a friend. Uh, you're talking to a friend. It's not just blah, blah, blah from every single direction. I always liked it as a music fan. I would read these guys growing up and think, oh, I want to be a you know, music writer. And if I could tell the person knew something about the music and they had a passion for it and there's some intelligent, and, you know, and maybe stuff that's a little bit eye-opening, I always liked that a lot. Well, you're talking to the converted. <laughs> Then uh, that wraps up my conversation with entertainment writer Adrian Chamberlain. Thanks for joining us today. We look forward to having you back for our next occasional show of Notes from the Underground coming soon. Thanks very much for listening, and thank you very much, Adrian. Thanks, Chris.